having somebody in your corner, in your inner sanctum that is prepared to challenge and support you. I think it's really difficult as a as an aspiring anything really to find the feedback you need to really start to think about how you might need to learn and develop over a period of time. Um, I, I think it's really difficult for people to give that honest feedback without fear of recrimination. And so uh, mentoring for me became a, a very powerful tool in, in understanding myself as a leader and then being able to be supported in my journey as a leader. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an accomplished sports leader who thrives in challenging high-performance environments and is considered a collaborative, values-driven, and results-focused leader. Her education includes a BA in psychology and sociology at Monash University, a postgrad diploma of business from Swinburne University of Technology, she is an Australian Institute of Company Directors Professional and has graduate diplomas in education, counselling and career counselling for elite performers. Our guest has held national and general manager roles at AFL Players Association, Gold Coast Football, Essendon Football Club and the CEO of Nipple Victoria. She's had director roles at the Ignition Project and Inspired Heads and has chaired positions on committees at Cricket Australia and Tennis Australia. She was the first woman to hold a senior executive position with an AFL club, the youngest ever CEO appointed in Netball Victoria's history, and is currently the CEO of Swimming Australia, Australia's most successful Olympic sport. I am pleased to introduce you to an authentic, ambitious, and humble leader who has published Game On, and every girl needs a plan, Lee Russell. Lee, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. You have quite an extensive resume as a young leader. What fueled your passion as a child? Oh, I don't feel like a young young person anymore, <laughs> but uh, certainly uh, I think actually the, just the will or the want to work with people. Um, I was never a person that really knew uh, what they wanted to do after school. But, but the one kind of thread for me was very much around um, creating a, a career that was, was about people. And, and being about people, was sport a big part of your youth as well? Well, as a, as a participant, absolutely. Uh, uh, actually, for me, probably sport was the thing that uh, was probably the greatest joy in my in my life in my childhood. Uh, certainly, growing up in the in the back blocks of Melbourne um, in the 70s and 80s, is, it wasn't what you would call a, a privileged uh, childhood. It was certainly pretty tough for for our family and for for all the families that I that I knew as a kid. And uh, sport became for me. 
uh, almost a, uh, an escape hatch or a, certainly a really highlighted point of my week. Um, and my, my love and passion was for basketball. I, I loved playing. I loved playing with my friends. And uh, it, it absolutely became a thread for me of significance and certainly fuel the, the passion, I guess, I've got about the role that sport can play in people's lives for sure. Education, curiosity and learning are a huge part of your genetic makeup. What was the key driver in starting out in psychology and sociology? Well, probably just to know and understand more about people. I've, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated with human performance and, and human potential. And I really wanted to understand from, uh, I guess, a psychological point of view, what made people tick and how, how, it, how it made them tick. And sociology really was that that I guess that rounding out of that, you know, really understanding uh, communities and cultures and, and the impact, uh, nature and nurture, I guess you could call it. So uh, I really loved uh, both fields of study. So talking about communities and cultures, when did you first discover your leadership talent? Well, I, I think as a child, actually, um, I really loved, I loved being in in roles, if I can use that word, but it's certainly in, in the family and, and also uh, in my sport and at, at school. I just loved the opportunity and relished, you know, all those moments where you could lead and and certainly love, I still love it now, but I, I would kind of call myself a, a, a lifelong learner in, in leadership. I don't think we're, we truly ever um, kind of get there in inverted commas, but I, I knew very early on that I really enjoyed uh, the, the opportunity that, that leadership brought in all its forms. And I, I kind of think about it in a, in a very broad way. So not just your very formal roles, but certainly the roles that you play in your family and, and uh, in, your, in your community. So for you as a leader, what are your non-negotiables when it comes to your leadership DNA? Oh, great question. Um, I think oh, I think my, my non-negotiables really are about authenticity. And I know that's an overused word these days, but uh, I've very much tried to remain true to myself uh, through my whole journey. And sometimes that's worked for me and sometimes it probably hasn't. But the, the the core essence, I guess, is you never move far from the truth. You'll be okay um, in in the long run. So, probably authenticity. I uh, I don't suffer fools gladly. Um, so I guess that comes through in in my leadership style as well. In in regards to telling it like it is and and really having those those honest conversations, even if they're they're very difficult conversations. So I think that's probably the 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 essence of of the non negotiables. So AFL is kind of the, the main sport in Australia in probably the winter codes and, and it has sort of born out of Victoria but is growing very rapidly across the country. How did you get the opportunity to start your sport management career in AFL? Uh, well, interestingly for me, I, I was a teacher, a secondary teacher, and uh, certainly moved fairly quickly into the the counselling and the career counselling space um, with young people rather than, than being really enamoured about teaching in the classroom. And, and from there, I started uh, really working informally with athletes and, and counselling athletes and coaching athletes sort of behind the scenes. And uh, a, a role came up at the AFL Players Association. They were um, 
considering a national education framework for the first time. And, and this was really in the days before player welfare managers existed at AFL clubs. So I'm showing my age a bit now, but, <laughs> but there, was, there, was, there was definitely not the incredible um, capacity and network that exists in AFL clubs now and, and, and in the AFL and AFLPA itself. So uh, it was really the, the first uh, time they were thinking about how to create a national framework to, to make sure that player welfare and, and as we call it now, well-being was uh, top of mind for football clubs. So it was really the combination of my education degree and, and teaching experience, uh, putting it in with my experience uh, counselling athletes. So actually it was a, an incredible role and, and very exciting at the time because because it didn't exist um, nationally or uniformly across the country. So it was a real opportunity to uh, work with clubs and and really get to know the sport uh, from from a, a broad range of perspectives as you as you worked with across you know across the country with a lot of people. So I've seen quite a lot of change in sport management diversity since you were recruited as the first ever female senior executive within an AFL club. How important are initiatives such as Change Our Game in accelerating that change in diversity? Well, I think uh, I have seen change, but I, I would say not as much as I would have thought I would have seen in, across the course of 20 years. And 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 so the things like Change Our Game and the work that, that Dr. Brady O'Donnell is doing in Victoria, uh, for example, is, is critical because um, if, if we've got any hope of accelerating diversity in our sport, we need to never kind of put out, get our foot off the pedal. Um, and so I think I think change our game and male champions of change and and all of the incredible initiatives that are now happening around the country are are absolutely vital because I think we can get lulled into a sense of the work's done because we are starting to see uh, females in roles potentially that you you know may have um, not been the usual place that we would have seen them in the past but we're actually still really considering um, true diversity and, and true gender equity and um, then diversity in a, in a broader sense as well, not just about gender, but certainly about that, that really true representation of communities in our, in our sport governance and, and certainly our, in our sports themselves. So I think the, the work's incredible and I'm very passionate about a, a number of things uh, that, that are happening around the country, but I, I, I would like to see more as well. Definitely. No, it's important. I think I know in environments I've worked in, the greater the diversity, the more enjoyable it is and the better outcomes that you get long term. And so I yeah, think that's really yeah, important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's so important. And it's also, it's just so important to uh, ensure that people have opportunity and they have, uh, you know, I've, I've had an incredible career through sport and it, it, it's really important that I, you know, for our for our children that are coming and 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 certainly people that are just starting out their careers that they know that they can also have incredible careers in sport, whether that be as an athlete or a coach or administrator or or so on. Our our sporting industry needs people to be excited about the opportunities in it. What have been the biggest changes that you've seen in the sports management kind of sector since you sort of dived in there, you know, a number of years ago? Uh, yeah, well, I think the more professionalisation of, of sports management, I, um, you know, the, I, I guess what's 
asked of sport now, um, you know, there are high expectations placed on sport from governance down. And we've got much more corporate, I guess, in our approach over over the years. So what I, what I have seen probably is a much more professional or formalisation of of what we do and and how we do it. And and certainly sport as an industry uh, is is being incredibly disrupted by by new things like esports and all those sorts of things that are um, really asking us to think about how we deliver sport in different ways and our modern our modern life is asking us, uh, you know, uh, are our sports, our traditional offerings really still fit for purpose? So sports management becomes much more uh, important in that in that space because we've got to uh, make sure that we're you know we're fully thinking into the future but you know how we run a strategy how we execute on that strategy has become pretty pretty damn important and it's interesting to look at say sport organizations around the world because a lot of them were initially established based on volunteers and as it's professionalized the structures haven't always gone in sync with them so, so where do you see the kind of structures in sport changing in the next you know, decade or two? Well, I think what we're seeing at the moment is we've, we've got a really, really traditional sporting base where you've got your club model uh, and then you've got your states and then you've got your national sporting organisation uh, as an example. And, and I think the federated model is, is really under some stress uh, in, in terms of as you said, you know we've we've always been so reliant on on volunteers. We we understand though that the the I guess the decline in in volunteering is is happening uh, to each and every sport. We simply don't have the numbers anymore that help run sport at that grassroots level. So how we how we kind of deliver sport, what how people consume sport is is changing so rapidly as well that I think. You know, lot, lots of sports is probably scrambling to keep up and also to understand how they uh, retain the best parts of them, their traditional offerings, but completely evolve so that they continue to be relevant to people in, in the community um, in the years to come. So I, I think it's happening to us regardless uh, as our communities change, sport changes too. Uh, but sport my my experience of sport has been that often we we are slow to respond. There's many parts, there's many people, and it creates challenges for sports administrators to to make sure we're sort of bringing everybody with us um, in in that change that we know is happening around us. You were the youngest ever CEO of Nipple Victoria. What was the biggest lesson you learnt in your first CEO role? Ah. Uh, Great question. Um, I was young. I, I, again, I, I, was, I probably I didn't feel young, um, but looking back, I was really young. I, I think actually my the biggest lesson um, that is still very much something I try and lead by today is build the best team around you that you can and and get people smarter than you sitting at your table. Um, so that you can um, shine yourself, but also that the, it becomes a, a real team effort. Uh, I, I think the lesson is you, you never think, you never know as much as you think you do sometimes. And and getting that diverse thinking at an executive level with you is is probably fundamental to a CEO's success in sport. I would believe. So for young sport managers with a goal of becoming a CEO in the future. What would be some key advice that you'd give them? Uh, 
one of the things that I think's worked incredibly well for me is just the power of mentoring and or being mentored, um, but also mentoring others and uh, that 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 aspect of you know having having somebody in your corner in your inner sanctum that is prepared to challenge and support you. I think it's really difficult as a as an aspiring anything really to find the feedback you need to really start to think about how you might need to learn and develop over a period of time. Um, I, I think it's really difficult for people to give that honest feedback without fear of recrimination. And so uh, mentoring for me became a, a very powerful tool in, in understanding myself as a leader and then being able to be supported in my journey as a leader. So definitely mentoring would be uh, a, a key piece of advice. And, and the other one probably is um, go, and, go and apply for roles before you're ready um, because if you wait until you check off all the lists, you'll be sort of left behind a bit. So uh, I always try and encourage people to think really broadly about roles, um, to see their career as a bit of a patchwork quilt rather than a, a linear road to a CEO role, for example, if that's what they would like to achieve. And... Um, and kind of get as much experience in, in many different sports as you possibly can uh, because I think one of the things that has worked well for me is, is really working across sports and seeing different systems and structures in place. Um, it, it does help when you are in those roles of leadership. So talking about going into those different spaces, after your role at Netball Victoria, you explored the world of entrepreneurship and delved into sport governance positions. What was the catalyst of kind of stepping out of it, being a CEO into that different space? Well, the catalyst was actually having my third child um, and needing to be more flexible, I guess, in, in how I worked and, and, and when I worked and uh, putting the needs of the family alongside the needs of a career at the same time so it was just a it was a great opportunity to see things from a different angle uh, in terms of getting involved in some governance uh, roles and and even just doing completely different things um, but particularly consulting back into sport was really valuable because uh, again I got to see different environments and work on you know some really great projects that um, you become very passionate about and you get to obviously extend your network and and certainly working for yourself, tests your medal a bit as well um, in regards to leadership. So it was a it was a great opportunity for me, but also a little bit born out of necessity around around a growing family. Okay, so can you enlighten the listeners on what the Ignition Project was all about? Yeah, uh, the Ignition Project is a, a project that I worked on with Bianca Chatfield, who is a former Australian uh, diamonds netballer, and we. We built a online leadership program for women together and put it uh, basically. It, it meant that wherever you were, you could you could access some some good um, thinking into um, yourself as a leader and and then your roles that you might want to take on in the future. So we saw the need really to be able to speak to to women to um, it, it sort of I guess boost their confidence around. Um, what they were doing and, and perhaps um, get them to kind of dream big about what, what they might think about doing in the future. And that then turned into a book that we wrote called Game On. So I'm really proud of um, that work and, and certainly Bianca's still working in and around the Ignition Project uh, as, as since I've now gone back into the world of sports admin. 
Let's change lanes for a moment. You have a passion for high performance. What do you think are the key ingredients for developing a successful high performance environment? I think there's a lot of people, a lot of uh, us that think into this really deeply, and and there's obviously you know tons of ideas about high performance and and how to get it and how to sustain it, which I think's the the probably the the real question. But um, for for me, high performance really is actually about the sum of the people at any one time that you've got in that organisation or team, and and then what you do with those people. So. Um, it, it starts and ends with people, I guess, and and certainly um, how you engage those people. But you know, really commencing with how you bring those people into your team and ha- who you recruit and how you how you uh, I guess um, hire them um, and then how you engage them in you know in their work um, as we all kind of strive to this this mysterious thing called high performance. So if you could change the culture of high-performance sport, what would the future look like? Well, it would it, unconscious bias would be gone um, and, and certainly one of the things or one of the opportunities I think for high-performance would is the, the concept of being just hiring the very, very, very best people um, for those roles that you've got or, or you know, the, on your team. And so I think I would find a way... Um, or the future would look like it, that, that that those unconscious biases that we all hold um, about about people and things to be removed so we can just fundamentally get the best people in those roles um, unencumbered by that. Um, it would also look it would look good financially, I think too. I think where there is that reality that high performance, you know being the best of the best and sustaining that performance, it costs money. And one of the things that we obviously grapple with in sport is, you know, how do we make the most of our our investment, our funding, um, our our dollars uh, to, to towards high performance, and and sometimes that can feel like how long's a piece of string kind of kind of question um, because there are many choices you need to make. So I, if I could, if I could wave my magic wand, it would be um, certainly including uh, that we had enough money to do what we wanted to do. And then, so you know, changing that into from an environment, say, a high-performing CEO, how would you define someone in that space? Well, someone that's got high emotional intelligence, I think, is real, really key. Um, I think the the best people I've seen in action, and and certainly the the I guess the the most pleasurable people to work with as well are those that are that really understand themselves. They understand then also other people and how to get the best out of other people. But but starting with themselves. Um, so high EI and and I guess um, also looking after themselves for the long game rather than, um, you know, I see a lot of people working very, very hard, very, very long hours um, and putting their needs almost uh, last. And I'm not sure that is a sustainable um, working practice in, in this day and age. So somebody definitely that's looking after themselves too. Yeah, it's a, it's an all too common problem and it's something that does need addressing. I think if you want to because it has a major effect on the performance of the team or the people around them. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think we're only now starting to think about that from a, a leadership perspective. Uh, I think we've been 
told the stories of of perhaps great leaders in the past that only you know many like the Margaret Thatcher story you know only managed to sleep four hours a night and, and perhaps um, coined the whole you know kept performing at a high level but actually I think uh, what we know now particularly from the the research of neuroscience is that sleep for example is such a critical uh, enabler of effective leadership and um, but but we've come from a culture where uh, it's it, you know talking about um, looking after yourself or um, getting enough sleep or doing all the right things um, is seen as a bit soft and where we we are now having those conversations uh, acknowledging that that's not the case but I'm not sure that is uh, still translating in, into our practices at the moment but it certainly um, need, we need to think about that as leaders how we show up for leadership is is, is really vital. You took over the reins of Swimming Australia just before the Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games. You know, what were the main priorities during that, say, if initial first couple of months, um, obviously with the distractions of Commonwealth Games going on, and how effective have you felt those changes have been? Yeah, I, I came very much at the tail end um, and of Com Games, and by tail end, I mean it was it was in those uh, it was just before the, the games started. Uh, so actually, the first couple of weeks were incredible, <laughs> and, I, and I thought, God, it could be like this the whole time, raining gold in the pool. <laughs> then I'm 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 on a really good thing here. But uh, it, it's uh, the first couple of months really were absolutely doing less talking and, and more listening. And probably the thing that I realised really quickly was how many people across the country are involved in swimming uh, from a, an administration point of view, but also volunteer-based, coaching-based, athletes, um, pathway, participation. And it was clearly really important for me to, uh, you know, get to know as many of them as possible in, in a, a relatively short space of time so I could get going on our priorities but um it, it did absolutely it was a really big time trying to to get to know as many people as possible or at least um visit people and and hear about some of the opportunities and challenges that swimming had in front of it so definitely the priority was to to listen and and shut up for a while definitely we've seen in australia you know you had the 2000 olympics there was a massive focus in sport around high performance and that shift has kind of really occurred in the last few years around a big emphasis on enabling greater participation opportunities in Australia. How is swimming addressing the decline in health and wellness of the nation? Well, I think um, swimming is really well positioned actually as a sport because to, to address that and, and to continue to think about that in the future because uh, about four to five million uh, Aussies swim regularly for, for fitness and for fun and, and um, also for competition. And we've got We've got about 90,000 members that, that swim in a, in a competitive traditional sense uh, alongside that figure. Then we've also got the, the learn to swim environment, uh, which at any one time, there's about a million and a half uh, kids in that, in that system or that industry um, learning to swim. So swimming really can be seen as a survival skill, a fitness or a fun or a, a hobby or a lifestyle skill. And, and then also a competitive uh, stream of, of activity as well. So I, I think swimming is a sport that has something for everybody and, and we talk about it as being really applicable as, a, as an activity for you no matter what your age or stage in, in life. And so with that, I think we, we do um, think into often about the, the issue of f physical literacy and, and, and getting Australians moving more often. 
Um, and we've got those offerings that that suit a broad range of people. Uh, and certainly because of our because of our beach loving outdoorsy kind of lifestyle, I think we do speak to to many Australians um, and and have a brand that we can use as a communication platform to get those messages about health and wellness out there more powerfully. The sport is is a major part of the Australian psyche and cultural identity. The pressure from the public and the media to perform is quite immense. We hear of a greater emphasis on the athlete welfare, however little focus on the well-being of coaches and staff. How do you approach this aspect of your people with limited resources that you have? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, particularly, we've just gone through quite a quite a major, um, I guess, few weeks with one of our athletes testing positive to a an a, a, a banned substance, and and then the I guess the proceed uh, the uh, things that happened after that in terms of media attention and and uh, uh, spotlight on sports administration and and our leadership of the issue and all those sorts of things. Um, and I think the two, you, you're right, the two groups that kind of get forgotten in that is the, the well-being of coaches and, and certainly sports administrators. And while we've got great frameworks uh, that are now around our athletes, I think we've got some work to do for those two two parts of the the, the community, the, the coaches and swimming administrators. Having said that, we we do have in place um, some wellbeing uh, strategies for our staff and, and certainly um, for our coaches like EAP programs and, and uh, debriefs and all those sorts of things, rest and recovery. Um, but I, I do think we're probably just starting to think about that as a, as a broader, broader uh, thing we need to uh, address in the same way as we have with our athletes. People are our greatest assets and you've spoken about this a couple of times throughout the interview. Sports are very, very good at professional development for staff from a technical point of view. However, it seems to be quite limited in the development of the actual person. What strategies have you found effective in personal development of the staff you lead? I, I really love, uh, I, I absolutely um, give a bit of credence to personal development because I think the personal and professional, of course, is is all one in the same in the end. And as we talked about, you know, how you show up for leadership obviously has a very personal kind of approach to that uh, question. So one of one of the tools I really love uh, using with our teams is the the tool of DISC. And DISC is very much about uh, behavioural style, not personality, um, but certainly behavioural style and how how that style. Uh, tends to behave and, and operate um, in, in sporting environments or in, in working environments. And so I love to uh, use the tool as, I guess, a bit of a, a language system, if you like, around behaviour and have those great conversations about the kind of behaviours that are acceptable or the kind of behaviours that we want to see in leadership and, and the kind of behaviours that will make us stand out from from the crowd in a very positive way. So and then, of course, to, to use that when conflict happens, which which absolutely can be uh, seen as a as a healthy thing in organisations if it if it is managed well. So, uh, I've used I've used this over the years um, because of its simplicity, um, but also that it it's, it tends to speak to people, and they tend to to understand that intuitively and be able to use it as a tool, um, at, you know, for their own works from an individual perspective and a team perspective. But I think. There, there does need to be an emphasis on personal development, just 
because simply I think it is also, it's very linked to professional um, professional life. Mm. The integrity of sport is starting to grow in importance and intense scrutiny around the world. What can we learn from the current state of play? Uh, well, I think one of the things that we, we have learned is there is enormous expectation on sport to get it right. And um, particularly when we're, we're dealing with, with young people and, and uh, you know, various diverse communities of people as well. And the, we're learning that integrity, it, it, that's where it sort of starts and finishes. You know, we, we have to have the right things in place to, to safeguard our people, but also we have to have... Um, the right people working in our sports to ensure that 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 the playing field, whatever that is, is uh, is a is an equal one, and that it is a, a clean one. So, uh, integrity in sport, uh, quite understandably, has become um, a very formal and professional uh, area uh, that that is now requiring more and more resources to as 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 those expectations of sport continue to grow. So protecting the, the privacy and the duty of care required to support both athletes and coaches is extremely important. How can we more effectively balance the privacy of those individuals with the need to increase the integrity of sport by, I suppose, putting it out there in public on this is what's happening, this is what we're doing, this is how we're changing? Yeah, Clearly, I've been thinking about that over <laughs> over the the last few weeks, and and um, having some really interesting conversations with with other leaders in in sport uh, as well. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've got the answer. Uh, my my thoughts are that that privacy is still a very important right of people, particularly athletes. Um, ir irrespective of whether they're in the public eye or not, irrespective of whether they're receiving taxpayer funding or not, and um, and so I think we have, to, we have to have these conversations but be very mindful that people do have a right to privacy. They do have a right to, um, I guess, decide when they will release information about themselves or their, their situation. Um, and, when, you know, when those rights are taken away, that does have a negative impact on their well-being or can have a negative impact on their well-being. So... Um, but we're living in an age where the expectation to information is is instantaneous, um, and news cycles are uh, quick and never ending. So I, I think the the expectations have changed over time. But I, I also really, when I'm thinking about this this issue, I really want to balance that with the you know your fundamental rights as a as an athlete or a person or a coach to to privacy and to um, be able to tell your own story uh, at at the time that you choose. Um, I think that that's probably been a bit lost in the conversations that I've been having over over the last period of time. Mm. So, so your whole life has been focused around sport. What do you do to ensure that you lead an active and healthy lifestyle? Uh, I, I think about this question a lot too. Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 such a harder thing to do as you do um, take on bigger leadership roles. No, no matter if you're in sport or, or in another industry, I I feel like it's the first thing that can fall off the the radar. And particularly in my role, I travel quite a lot, and so I find it really difficult to be consistent with with my own 
uh, exercise or my own sort of time out, I guess, and looking after myself mentally and physically. But um, I, I, so at this point, I try and fit it in where I've, I've given up trying to be consistent. I'm, I'm now trying just to fit it in um, wherever I can to, to get those those few moments where I can kind of do my exercise and, and uh, let off some stress and, and so on and, and maintain my, my physical uh, well-being. But the thing that I really focus on these days, um, and it might be because I'm getting a bit older too, but, but really the, the value of sleep and good sleep for hygiene has become kind of my little um, secret weapon or not so secret weapon um, in terms of, you know, as, a, as we sort of chatted about before, I think it's really easy to, to disregard something as simple as sleep being really important. And, and what I have learned is that absolutely I perform and, and function so much better when I'm in the, in the zone of good sleep. So that sleep is good for rejuvenating the energy and the vitality in you. So how do you free your mind and switch off from the world of swimming? Well, I have the other secret weapon called crazy kids. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's it, no matter what, and, and every everyone kind of says the same thing, but no matter what kind of day you've had and whether you've, whether you've uh, you know, had a good one or a bad one, you walk through the door and uh, uh, three little people simply just do not care what kind of day I've had. So um, in terms of switching off, I can switch quickly into family mode and, uh, you know, they're, they're meeting their needs or making sure they're okay really does take me out of the, the swimming world. And, and I, I guess I just try to live by that, that little, you know, don't sweat the small stuff, it's all small stuff. And while some, some things can, you know, feel quite big at the time, those uh, little humans that, that we've got um, seem to put it in perspective pretty quickly. Beautiful. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? That's such a great question. Um, look, it was a little while ago, uh, but I, I took a real, uh, I guess, pivot a couple of years ago and um, uh, was on a TV show for Foxtel called The Recruit. And uh, the, it was so ridiculously different and terrifying to what I had done in the past. And so um, I actually said no to it at the, at the outset because I just thought how ridiculous, you know, I'm, I'm not going to learn these things for the first time. I'm not going to learn, how, how, you know, it's, it's pointless to be um, learning some TV skills, uh, you know, in my 40s. But um, it, 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 so it was a first time for a whole range of new skills and, and what I actually reflected on was that as you do get older, uh, the opportunities to do things for the first time become, um, you know, not, not sort of not, not there in the everyday. Um, so I guess that was probably the, the biggest thing that I've done for the first time was to actually um, learn a whole new industry and uh, and get to get comfortable with being uncomfortable in that space but um it's certainly been a little while since i've probably done something else for the first time um what do you suggest i should do oh good question <laughs> i suggest that you would do so you've been involved in swimming I, I think you know obviously i think one thing is just to you know that obviously that put yourself in a different position so i think sometimes actually being been able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and walk mm. that for a day or a week and 
and give yourself a whole different perspective. So I remember working at a place called Tanyapura and my role was to oversee you know, about 500 people in multiple areas from sport, health, education, hospitality. And so I spent a whole day in the kitchen, being a kitchen right. head and doing something like that. And I find that is the best way to understand someone else's world and how yeah, you might be affecting it. them by your leadership. Yeah, it's great. And I know other other industries kind of do do that where you, you know, you you might be in a leadership role, but you certainly go and work the checkouts or you do, you know, you do something very different to your role. So you do get that bird's eye view. So I'll, I'll have a think about that and take that up. Maybe become a learn to swim teacher. <laughs> uh, well, I'm happy to, I'm happy to shadow one, but I think, I think they they do a very good job. I'm not sure I would. <laughs> <laughs> what is the one question that you would love to solve? Uh, well, I, I, it's, it's for sport, but I guess for, for our world as well. And if I could have the answer to how we speed up um, making our worlds, be that sport or otherwise, as gender diverse as we possibly can um, in the shortest space of time so that all of us get to enjoy the um, incredible opportunities that sport brings. So right now, I think the stat, you know, to have um, gender equity across our sport is about 100 and something years, you know, we'll, we'll be all long dead um, before we see that. So if I could solve something, it would be how to radicalise our systems, um, our structures and our thinking so that that almost you know, lots and lots of people, lots of different people can be involved in this in this greatest thing that we call sport, which has had huge impact on, on my life. And how do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? Uh, it feels effortless, but you, you and, and time sort of marches on or stands still one of the two. <laughs> you, you, you sort of lose time would be the would be the way I'd put it. Lee, it's been great speaking with you. So how can, and, and you've given away some really good insights, how can people learn more about what you do and if people would like to connect with you, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, well, certainly uh, we, we, we do lots of kind of um, uh, updating of people, I guess, on our socials with, with Swimming Australia. And certainly from a connection point of view, it would probably be LinkedIn. Um, it seems to be a bit of a platform where people feel comfortable to reach out um, professionally and, and, uh, and start a conversation. Lee, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening and sort of being involved in your story from when you were a child, enjoying sport, playing basketball, and then finding your way through education where you just got attracted to that sporting world and helping people in sport. And then going on to, you know, being a young leader and ensuring that you're continually learning and continually pushing the boundaries and making sure that you are, you continue that love of learning every single day. I love it how you have a very pragmatic approach to the problems and the challenges that you face in those roles. Like any CEO, it, it's not just smooth sailing all the time. There are things that come at you when you least expect them and your ability to kind of understand and comprehend those is really shining through. Uh, your humility and your humbleness for the people you work for and why they are so important for a high-performing environment is um, is great to hear and I look forward to seeing how 
your growth continues over the next few years in both your role of CEO of Swimming Australia and what you do in the future. So thank you very much for coming on the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I, I love you. I love your summary. I might have to listen to that a few times just to boost me up um, uh, through my day. But thank you so much for having me. I, I, I appreciate the conversation and I, I love talking about leadership. So, I, yeah, what a great opportunity for me. Thank you. On this week's Active CEO Wellness Tip, we're talking about travel agility. When you're traveling, you have to be agile in your approach to ensuring you're getting in your daily exercise. It's important to be flexible and be creative with what you have available. It might be using the hotel gym and throwing in some run shoes and running along the riverside path. It might be taking some stretch cords and, a, and, and utilizing some other things like water bottles to create weights inside your hotel room. It might be reaching out and finding where you can hire a bike. It might mean you only have 20 minutes to do a session, so you may just pop down to the gym, jump on the exercise bike, and put a little bit of intensity in there. But you have gotta be agile, and it's really, really important that you keep that exercise up, because you need your energy levels high and continuous throughout the time when you are traveling. Thank you for listening to a wonderful conversation with Lee Russell, the CEO of Swimming Australia, talking about diving into human potential on episode 53 of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO podcast. Life is like a roller coaster. You ride the highs with the lows. Being able to proactively plan when you get on and off the roller coaster is the art to sustainable energy and performance over a long period of time. Quite often people wait until the ride off the tracks before taking some time to recharge the batteries, refuel the tank, and switch off the things that drive our thoughts and actions every day. We have developed CEO periodization to give you a tool that ensures that you can enjoy sustainable energy which allows you to stand up and deliver, show up and perform, and ensure you be present and focused when your company and team need you the most. CEO periodization focuses on proactively placing you in periods of passive and active recovery into your life from a macro, which is a multi-year, micro, monthly, and meso, which is weekly and daily, point of view. To learn more, please do not hesitate to contact us about breaking the CEO code and breaking the coach code by going to www.nrg2perform.com or contacting me directly, craig at nrg2perform.com. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. 
Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.